If you would, what's your story? That's our little mini-series that we're doing. We looked at Solomon last Wednesday, and we're looking at Joseph this week. Every day and in every way, we must choose to live in God's story. I know that you're familiar with the story of Joseph, and I know that you know most of its features. I'm not sure if you know the purpose of it. I want you to see the stories in the Bible that we grew up. If you're my age, you saw them on flannel graph. Most of you may not even know what flannel graph is, maybe. But, um, but we saw those stories, and we knew them. We know the ins and outs of them and all the main components of them. But I would try to reframe it tonight, the story that you've heard in bits and pieces or excerpts of it, so to speak, but I want to frame it in its context in Genesis, and you'll find that it will be maybe a little bit different in what you think Joseph's life was really all about. And I say that because I don't want you to think of Bible stories as a kind of Aesop's fables. You know, Aesop's fable is a kind of story, a nice story that catches your attention, and then it always ends with some sort of moral lesson at the end of it. Uh, The life of Joseph, and by the way, yours too, is not a story of, see, if you're faithful to God and you obey him, even in difficult times, he will bless you. Um, that happens sometimes, um, but that's not what Joseph's life was about. And in fact, I'll tell you tonight, it wasn't anything close to what his life was really about. Um, and, and, and I want you to know that's not what your life is about. Um, but there is a very important point to his life tonight, and I want to show you how it fits into God's story Then I want to show you how he was able to interpret all the events of his life differently because he had an understanding of where he he fits in God's story. So that's going to be crucial tonight, and I want to show you how that can be relevant and applicable to your life. But let me show you a little bit about Genesis leading up to uh, Joseph's life. His life is really chapter 37 through 50, the last major component in Moses' writing. Family lines. If you're taking notes tonight, I would encourage you to do so because there's a lot of things that you can use to understand Genesis itself better in all of its stories. But family lines are enormously important, Genesis. The Bible starts off with the first great commission given to humanity, and that's Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. Um, Adam and Eve were to have children, and they were to create a proliferation of divine image bearers that would spread throughout all the the entire earth, and so the earth would be covered with people who properly reflected God's glory back to him. That's one of the main components of what it means to be in the image of God. When we sinned against God and fell with Adam and Eve, we lost the ability to reflect God's glory back to him. Um, We get that back when we have been recreated in his image through salvation. Now we can glorify God and exist according to the purpose for which he created us originally. That first great commission was handed on throughout everyone who was a major uh, character in the book of Genesis. Adam got it first, and Noah, after he steps out of the ark, in Genesis 9, verses 1 and 7, he is told the repeated great commission, the first one, be fruitful and multiply. Abraham is told it from a different vantage point, but he was told it four different times, in Genesis 12 through 22. Isaac is told it in Genesis 26. 
Jacob has told it in Genesis 28 and 35. Every major character all the way through Genesis is told, be fruitful and multiply, because the job of every human being was to, God said, proliferate those who are made in my image, because from them would come the seed of the woman that would ultimately lead to the seed of the Messiah. Now, at the same time, in the Genesis origins narrative, there is another thing going on, not just the woman's seed, but the seed of the serpent, and what some commentators call the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel, is Genesis 3.15. And it says that the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but that the seed of the woman will crush his head. And so we have an assault by Satan to try to ruin that so the Messiah cannot come. And so throughout, one of the major themes, if not the major theme of Genesis is, what is God going to do to bring about the seed of the woman and the Messiah correlated with this? How is he going to protect them? You get to Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham is called by God. And by the time of Abraham's death, a number of chapters later, there is only one son, only one son who is the seed of the woman left when Abraham dies, and that's Isaac. And throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, you have God's efforts to maintain, protect, and preserve, and that's his language, um, to preserve the seed of the woman so that the Messiah can come and ultimately reverse the curse entirely. Therefore, stay with me, you have structure in Genesis, and it's structured in a way that you wouldn't probably think of. There's a Hebrew word tonight. We'll have a Hebrew lesson. Ready? You say it with me. I'll say it first. Toledot. Say it with me. Toledot. Sandy, that is good. My prize student, Apple later. Toledot. And here's what it means. It means these are the generations... I'm going to tell you them because there are 10 of them. It's the way that Genesis is structured. And you won't grasp the meanings of the stories, why God lets things happen to them, what he does to get them out, and the way he goes about it. You won't get any of that. And by the way, and you won't figure out it in your life either if you don't know the structure that God has placed in the Bible for you to follow. Genesis 2.4, the first one is the generations of heaven and earth. 5.1, generations of Adam. Not, chapter 6, verse 3, I'm sorry, 6, 8, the generations of Noah. 10, 1, his sons. Shem, eleven ten. 10. Terah, eleven twenty seven. Ishmael, 25, 12. Isaac, 25, 19. Esau, 36, 19. Jacob is the very last one, the generations, the last Toledot, Genesis 37, 2, which ushers in the story of Joseph. But get this, ready, ready? That's important, here's why. Joseph is one of the main characters, and he is the one God uses to protect and preserve the seed of the woman through what happens in his life and how he responds to it. But get, get this, he doesn't have a toledot of his own. It's Jacob's. You know what that means? As great as he was and as looked up to as he was, he was not the main character. You would have thought after all the chapters given to his life that he would be the one that the seed comes through. But he's not. Judah is. Judah is. His brother, who in chapter 38 thinks that his niece or, right, is, or his daughter-in-law is a prostitute and goes into... This is the same Judah 
that God works his seed through ultimately and turns Judah's life around. It's not Joseph. So let me tell you this. See, to live in God's story doesn't mean that you are someone extraordinary. It doesn't mean that you're someone necessarily who has all these incredible gifts and abilities and that you are going to stand out and everybody's going to... It wasn't most of the time, it wasn't people's innate abilities or some great talents they had. Uh, because Joseph didn't have, he did have talents for sure. He led Egypt and he had leadership and organization skills and wisdom. He had those talents, but he didn't get to use them for 30 years. And see, he wasn't even so, see, to live in God's story, can I tell you the first principle would be, it's a process, number one. And number two, it's humiliating. And sometimes it's humbling because it's not God, living in God's story is not making much out of you. It's giving you the ability to make much out of God and others. And so God isn't looking tonight, to, you write, if you get in God's story, he's not going to put you on a pedestal, pedestal so to speak. It's not going to, he's going to put your name on the marquee or the highlights. He may do that, and at times he does give people rise and culture and power and ability but he's going to tell your story. And tonight you should take great encouragement in that because he ordinarily uses ordinary people. So what Joseph had to figure out was this. What does it mean to live in God's story? And you tonight, with this series, may be asking the same thing. I talked with someone this week and I was having a conversation with them and they said, thanks a lot because all week long I could think of, all I could think of was, is this God's story or my story? And I can tell you, the person was telling me that most of the time I was saying it was mine. And so they were saying, like, I had to change some things and do it differently because I figured that wasn't God's story. Joseph had to figure out what does it mean to live in God's, what was God's story and how do I live in it? So he had to ask these questions, right? Look at the totality of his life. He had to ask, how does his brothers selling him into slavery fit if his life tells God's story? How does being bought by Potiphar and his wife lying about him and then sitting in prison for two years, how does that fit? How does it fit that the chief cupbearer forgot all about him and didn't remember to mention him to Pharaoh for years? How does that fit? How does his eventually getting out of the prison into the palace and rising to power and authority, how does that fit? How did his dreams when he was a kid, as a teenager, and his ability to interpret them, a special talent and gift from God. How does that fit into God's story? See, tonight you may be here, and those aren't your questions, but you have a set of your own. And you would say, hey, how does a cancer diagnosis allow my life to fit into God's story? How does a marriage that didn't make it, how does that fit into God's story how is it that my children and the kind of, see, what about my ethnicity? What about my background? What about how my parents raised me? What about the financial status I have or don't have? And you be looking at the events in your life and the things that you can't control and the things that you can control in your life, and you're thinking question after question, hey, how does that fit? Am I, are these all just things that happen to everybody, and it's kind of like your story, and you have good things and bad things? And you see them as kind of just out there and they just happen? Or like Joseph, do you see every single day, every single way, everything that happens in your life, you see it as what God's story is all about and how he's telling it through your life. 
So Joseph's theological interpretation of his life, hear me, made a difference, especially on the major events of his life and how he responded to them and how God used them in his life. I'm going to show you three different passages tonight. We're going to unpack them one at a time. And the first one, if you'll turn there with me, is Genesis 41. You know by this time, in Genesis 39, he's been sold into slavery. He, Potiphar, and every, every house that Joseph works in, God blesses it. Potiphar's wife has eyes for him. He doesn't succumb. She gets mad. He gets eventually thrown into prison, but not just any prison. Remember, this is all by God. Providentially, he gets into the palace prison. And then eventually, after being forgotten for a number of years, he's remembered, he's taken out, he does his thing, interprets the dreams, which he's so good at. And by the way, you can look at Joseph's life as three sets or three pairs of dreams, two to his brothers and his dad when they are at home, two when he's in the prison to the two cupbearer, the butler, and then two more to Pharaoh when he gets out. His whole life is three sets, kind of like he did Moses, three sets of 40 years. You got Joseph, three pairs of dreams that he has or has interpreted. But by the time we reach Joseph's life in chapter 41, he's been released, he's been given the power. Look at his life. Now, I want you to see chapter 41 this way. There are two ways of looking at his story. And that's going to be true in all three texts I give you. But I want you to contrast every one of them. I want you to see he presents to you there is one way to look at your life and how the story is evolving and what story you're in, and there is a God way. Okay? Look at what look at the Bible says in 41 and verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. This is how he helped them through the famine. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? And whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. Now, I want you to watch because everything that happens in this part of the chapter of the story never happened at home. Joseph interprets or shows dreams and interprets his dreams at home, and they don't think he has the Spirit of God. They think he's completely selfish and egotistical. In fact, when he hears the dreams and he shares them with his family that they're from God, they hate him and eventually want to kill him, though he's spared from that by God's providence. But it's amazing, isn't it? His brothers who know God and his dad who knows God, they hear the dreams and they think he's awful. A pagan like Pharaoh who doesn't even know his God or worship him hears that he can do these dreams and believes him right off the bat. Now see, isn't that crazy? But that's the story he's living in this. He has that story going on in his life. And then it says, keep reading. He says, you shall be over my house. Now, he was supposed to be over his dad's house. But he's over Pharaoh's house instead. Right? And then you go over to verse 41. He is put over the land of Egypt. He's supposed to be over the land of Canaan. Verse 42 he gets a new robe or garment or clothes from Pharaoh. He had one from his dad, but his brothers took it from him. More on that later. But Pharaoh gives him a robe. Verse 43, everyone, when he rides by in his chariot, which is the second chariot only behind Pharaoh, only Pharaoh has more power, 
he has the second chariot, and everyone bows the knee. Now, isn't that crazy? That's the exact same phrase. If you go back to the beginning, that's the phrase that Joseph tells his brothers. Hey, I saw a dream, and all of you guys will be bowing the knee to me. And they all go, you got to be kidding me. That's awful that you'd even say that. That'll never happen. And here it is happening. But the Egyptians who don't even know Joseph, they're okay with it right off the bat. But see, he is in that story. Now listen, don't you see the temptation? Look at all the bad stuff. All of the stuff that's happening in Egypt should have happened back home with his family in Canaan. It never did. So he can get it all, all the things that he wants. His mom's dead, and he could have thought in his mind, hey, I wish my mom was here because she could see I finally made it. I've risen to the top. I overcame all the brothers. I overcame all that opposition. And he could say, hey, this is what I've been waiting for. But can I tell you that all those things are happening for him, and he has that going on, but that's not his story. He doesn't live in that story. That's not where he's at. He has all those things going on, and he uses all those things. But let me tell you what story he really lives in. Same chapter, a few verses later. So he has an Egyptian wife. Pharaoh also changes his name in verse 45, Zathnath Paneah, which means Egyptian, it's Egyptian for God speaks and he lives. So, again, in, in the patriarchal life, God changes people's names, right? Abraham, Abram, Sarai, Sarah, Jacob, Israel. See, God, but see, he's not in, in Israel, Canaan anymore. It's Pharaoh who changes his name. Now, you have all that influence that he could say, you know what? I'm not living in this story anymore back home, my dad in Israel. and that God. You know why? Because all that stuff was awful. They afflicted me. He even says it later. They were terrible to me. I'm not living. I, I choose not to live in that story. That's not Joseph. Because he can see beyond events into what the real meaning is. Now watch what he does. Verse 50. And, Joseph set, were, and to Joseph were born. I'm sorry. Let me read it again. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Ashnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now listen. Look at the context. Joseph is second in command. Imagine some guys who are bigwigs come up to Joseph and say, oh, congratulations, you and Asnath, you know, gender reveal. <laughs> you, know, you have a baby, you have a son, and what are you going to call him? And Joseph says, Manasseh. The guy goes, what? Manasseh? That's not Egyptian. <laughs> that sounds like a Hebrew name. And you know what Joseph says? Exactly. He goes, but why would you do that? Joseph says, because I'm a Hebrew. See, I'm a Jew. And so he says, I name my son that. Why? Because Manasseh means I forget all about all the bad stuff in the past. See, I'm not going to forget all my story because that's still my story. But I'm not going to, listen, listen. I'm not going to live and be identified by past pain. 
that's not going to be who I am. So I'm going to tell you, you know what? I choose to live in God's story every day. And you know what I'm going to do? Perpetually remind myself, no matter how much better it is on the Egyptian part of the story that I have in my life, that's not really who I am. I am a Hebrew And I worship Yahweh, the true God. And I'm going to name my son Manasseh because God is the one who's going to get me past all the difficulties that I face in my life. And that's who I am. And then he has a second son. And the Bible says he calls him Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, now, did you catch that? In the land of my affliction. Now, wouldn't you have thought that Egypt would be the land of his affliction? I mean, his brothers sold him into slavery. He's rejected by them. And he's never saw his parents again. And he's been gone for 13 years. Wouldn't you think that all the bad things, quote-unquote, that happened to him, he'd say, Canaan's the land of... No, he doesn't. You know why? Because no matter what happened to him back there, Canaan will be because that's God's place. That will always be first in his mind and heart. In fact, so much so that when he dies at the end of this book, he says, God is, see, I know the story. God is going to visit you and he's going to deliver you out of bondage someday. And 400 years later, here's what he says. I want you to have my bones because I want you to take me and bury me back in Canaan. Why? Because over and over, over and over in his life, he says, see, I choose this story. I choose this story. I'm not going to be buried here where people remember me and esteem me. In fact, Exodus 1 says, and there a Pharaoh arose that didn't know Joseph. See, all of his great exploits were done here. But no matter what happened in this world, here's what Joseph says. My story is all about God. It's all about being Hebrew. It's all about being a follower of God and about my people and the part that I have in God's story. I don't know if you've ever read, you should, Martin Luther King on the night before he was assassinated at a church gave a speech. It's been titled, The I've Been to the Mountaintop Speech. In it, I'm going to read a paragraph, one of the last paragraphs in the whole speech. I want you to see in his speech how he views his life and what he is doing for, uh, for, for black people and for their freedom and for their rights, I want you to see how he puts himself in the story of God. Ready? Listen. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And I wrote next to it, I want to live out God's story. He ha- and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. Who is he talking about? Moses. See, he knows patterns. He knows stories of character. He knows how God works and how he uses people. So in the story of helping black people gain their freedom and their rights and the civil rights and all that, here's how he sees himself and how he views things that happen to him. He views himself as Moses, leading his people to the promised land. And here's what he sees. 
he says Moses is rejected and Moses is mistreated and Moses gets to look over to the other side, but he actually never gets to go into the promised land. You see why he's drawing on the analysis? Because he doesn't really think that he's going to make it. And obviously, since he gives this speech, the next day he's shot and assassinated. He was pretty much right. He says, he allowed me to go to the mountain. I've looked over it. I've seen the promised land. Now listen to what he says. I may not get there with you. you know, can I say this? He sees himself as Moses, but he doesn't see them himself as Joshua. He says, Joshua leads you in. Joshua gets all the victories. Joshua sees the whole story to the end. He says, that won't be me. See, that's not how I fit in. I don't, he knew enough. I don't fit in God's story like that. He says, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy to, listen to this. See how, now, now see how he's responding to the difficult times that are coming. All the things he's faced, all the difficulties he thinks are coming. And so I'm happy to not, happy. <laughs> I'm not worried about anything. See that? To see what it meant for him to live in God's story. He could face anything that's coming his way. Jail, being attacked by dogs, being beaten, all the things that happened. He says, I'm not worried about anything. He says, I'm not fearing any man. Where in the world does he get that confidence? He views himself in God's story, and so he expects things, certain things. He doesn't expect to make it. He expects to be rejected. He expects to only to see things but not finish them. Why? Because in his mind, he sees that's where he is in God's story. So he says, I don't fear any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I, I think Martin Luther uh, King had a view of himself and saw what role he had and he had God's story as a pattern to figure it out. Second passage, if you turn there, is Genesis 45. Let me tell you this. You say, Pastor Walker, how would I know if I'm living in God's story? Let me tell you, you will talk differently about the things that happen in your life. And not only talk differently, but you will respond differently to them. Ready? Three times in... Genesis 45, Joseph is going to interpret the events of his life and he's going to see them through the lens of God's sovereign providence. And every time he goes to the next providence, he gets more intense and more theologically specific about what God is doing. And you're going to be shocked in the third one what he can actually say. Let me read them for you. He wept aloud and Verse 2 of 45, the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh. Let me turn over there. I'm not going to be able to say it all by heart. And made everybody go out so no one stayed with him. Made himself known to his brothers. He wept aloud so the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. They're just dumbfounded. They were dismayed at his presence. Meaning, uh-oh. <laughs> we're in trouble, right? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and listen to what he talks. Now listen to this. This is when you know you're in God's story. And he said to them, I am your brother, which he already said once, Joseph, whom you, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, ready? He doesn't deny the reality and fact of what they did. And later on, we're going to see in chapter 50, the most famous passage, he said, you meant it for evil. He doesn't just mention the fact that they sold him there. 
But he also tells about their inner motives for it. They wanted evil to happen to him. In fact, they, when they first talked to Joseph, not knowing it's him, they said, and we have one brother who is no more. Their idea is we probably killed him. He's gone. So that's what was going on inside them. So it says, and now don't be dismayed and or angry with yourselves. He's not talking about how dismayed and angry he is. Hear that? That's when you know you're in the story. You're sitting there thinking of others when you could be getting revenge and you have power and you could go over them and you could let them have it. He's not even thinking those things. He's saying, hey, don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Ready? For God sent me before you. Now listen, listen to the, look at the infinitive for it. To preserve life. He did not say to preserve, he did, so that I could show you that I was right and you were wrong. He didn't say, God sent me beforehand here just so that you guys would be okay. He says that, but it's more than that. What is he saying? To preserve life. Well, he says it again. Keep reading. He repeats it, but he's going to add something to it. Ready? For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And he says it again. And God sent me before you to preserve, same verb, now watch what he adds, what he means to the statement. To preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. What is he saying? I am the next person in line that preserves the seed of the woman. See, we get caught up in our lives and the events of our lives, and here's what we do. We think that it's all about this little micro story that God's doing all this, and all I can think about is me, how it affects me, what's going on in my life, and God's doing this, and, and me, 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 me. And God says, see, that's how you can't live in my story. If you have a me mentality, it's about we. See, there's a micro story, your little story, that's only one chapter in God's really big book, but there's a we and the we always trumps the me if you're living in God's story. And he says, Joseph says, I see it. I get it. I understand that you did this to me, but God did it for we. For we, meaning God's people. See, if I don't have all these things happen to me, I don't save Judah, and David never comes, and the ultimate David never comes, and the world's never saved, and the curse doesn't get re reversed, and Satan wins, the serpent. See, he knows it. I don't know how much detail he knew, but he knows it because he told I mean, many survivors, we have to have the seed continue. We have to, he says. And so it was for you, listen to the last one, so verse 8, so it was not you who sent me, but God. In other words, he's even saying to them this, it wasn't even mainly a problem with you. I mean, that's, that's crazy almost. It wasn't you that sent me. You it wasn't even primarily what you did that was wrong. It was God who was orchestrating the events of my life so that I could tell the story and I could have my part. My part was like the, all the people in the past. See, all throughout Genesis, God is working to preserve the seed. Abel kills Cain. The seed of the... See, 1 John 3, verse 12, read it sometime. Cain was of the evil one. 
David fights Goliath. He has a coat of mail. It's like serpent skin. David, representing the people of God, is the seed of the woman. Goliath is the seed of the serpent, and he's even dressed like it. And on that day, see what the Bible promises, that the serpent will, will hurt the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush his head, and David cuts his head off. Why? Because he's a head crusher. And they're all throughout the Old Testament. And see, them. ultimately, the head crusher, Jesus, would come, and he would ultimately win over the seed of the woman through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And that's why the book of Romans ends in chapter 16 and verse 20, which says this, and through Jesus, Satan will have his head crushed shortly. His effect will be no more and otherwise. Because Joseph sees that he's in God's story, and God preserves it, through the threat of violence by having Seth come along that Adam and Eve have. After the flood, he delivers them through the ark. He delivers the seed through the face of foreign corruption of the other kings that try to pervert and take Sarah as their wife. You have the face of certain death in Genesis 22 when God seemingly is going to put Isaac on the altar. In the face of famine... And lastly, believe it or not, the face of family conflict all throughout Genesis. Now think with me because I'm going to ask you to, to answer. Tell me some of the conflicts, sibling conflicts that take place as a pattern all through the book of Genesis. First one I gave you, Cain and Abel, right? You can't miss that one. What's the next one? You have Jacob and Esau. Ishmael and Isaac. What else? Shem and Ham versus you know, Shem and Japheth versus Ham, right? Remember, he was Canaan. Even Abraham and Lot's servants gotten, right? And then you also have the feminine one. What do you have? Leah and Rachel, right? And even when you get past Genesis, you got Hannah and, right? So it, it goes on and on and on through the Bible. Now listen, here's, the, here's a great application. Ready? So Joseph's part in the story was to preserve the seed and, and make a way for Messiah to still come into this world. But also part of unraveling the curse from the very beginning was to attack and overcome the seed of the serpent. And how does he do that? Joseph does it through undoing the family cycle of violence that's been in the seed line all along the way. You know how he does it? By not using violence on his brothers when he had the possibility of doing it. Instead, here's what he does. He does. He forgives. He forgives. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, and we're almost done. I'm going to tell you this last part of the story, and you probably will be too fast for you to write notes. But I so how does God, through Joseph, show the start, part of the story where reconciliation between the conflict of siblings, which is a major motif in Genesis, how does it get resolved in Genesis? Here's how. Because Joseph tells the story through clothing. You know when he shows, clothing stands for lots of things in Genesis. Deception, remember Esau and Jacob? Jacob got his, son, his, his brother's coat on and smelled like him and everything else. So it's used, for, it's used for status to show how great you are, how much someone loves you. It's also showed for a change of fortune, either good or bad. So Joseph comes out and how was his dad, what does his dad do for him? 
He gives him a coat, a robe of many colors, and he's honored. Of course, that robe gets him in a lot of trouble because it shows that he's his dad's favorite. So when they grab him and sell him off, what does Genesis 37 say? They take the robe off of him. So Joseph has two disrobing episodes in his life because every time he has his clothes, his robe taken off, he's going down. So he loses the robe the first time. They put him in the pit, and then they take him to slavery, and he goes down to Egypt. He's in Egypt a second time, and he's in, in Potiphar's house, and his wife reaches out, and what does it say in Genesis 39? She grabs his robe, and when he's trying to leave, she pulls it off of him. A second time, his robe is taken from him, and this time he goes from the pit even further down into the prison. But if you read the story carefully, what you find out is is that when the day that in chapter 41 that he gets taken out of the prison and Pharaoh gives him rise to power, what does Pharaoh give him? Not only his signet ring, but what? Yeah, he gives him new robe, new clothes. See, he's been elevated. He's got a new status. Now here's the cool thing. He also... It's now in the position because God has elevated him that when his brothers come to see him and he forgives them, you know what he does? Read it for yourself. He gives them all sets of new clothes. Benjamin, he gives five sets to because he was the youngest. But here's what he does as an evidence that he forgives his brothers. I'm going to give you new clothes. You are forgiven. See, here's one of the last things about living in God's story. Your story, when you're, if, if you're living for Jesus, your story will point to his story. Jesus had two disrobing events in his life. In the Gospel of John, what were they? The first one was voluntary in John 13. And what was he doing? Yeah, he took off his own garment, the robe that he wore, and he got down on his hands and knees and he washed their feet. The second disrobing in Jesus like Joseph, or Joseph like Jesus, is what happened in John 19. Yeah, they took off his robe and they put on a purple one, right, to mock him and to make fun of him. But they didn't really know that that robe was a robe of status. That robe was the robe of a true king, and he would give his life. And, and Jesus is resurrected and goes to heaven. And book of Revelation, what is he pictured as too many, so many times when he's revealed in his glory? He's wearing a new robe. And by the way, when you get to heaven and all the saints are in heaven, what are they wearing? Oh, they're wearing white robes. Why? Evidence of forgiveness. See, that's what it means See, that's what he does. See, Joseph's story points to Jesus' story. And what is that? That part of reversing the curse is reconciling God's people to one another. See, we ought to be, we ought to be people who forgive, people who are reconciling, people who love one another, people who understand the story and the patterns of how things work and the purposes God puts in his life. So when people offend us and people mean evil against us and people do all kinds of manner of you know, wickedness against us, what do we do? We're like Joseph, like Jesus. We're willing to have our robes taken off. We're willing to be even humiliated. We're willing to do that. Why? Because we want to be part of the story. So our response 
to power differently. I don't use it to get back at people. I use it to help people and to forgive people and to demonstrate God. See, I use my life differently. I respond to events differently. Why? Because I'm in a different story. This is the story that our children need to be modeled before. They need to see this story. They need to see these different responses. They need to see that we are different and and, and we're, we're done. But look at the rest of the New Testament. It's filled with stories about new clothing. A prodigal son comes home and his dad says, bring out the best robe for him. Why? Forgiveness. This is what God's all about. What does the Bible say about change in Ephesians and Colossians? Put off, put on. Those are garment words. Those are clothes words. The demoniac of Gadara was clothed in his right mind because when he got saved and came to know Jesus, Jesus gave him clothes. I mean, and it goes on and on because that's the kind of people we are. That's the Joseph story. That's the Jesus story. The question is, is it your story? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Joseph's interpretation, his understanding of what he was doing and what your story had to do with him and how he fit in it. And he was able to see his brothers and prison and being forgotten and being lied about and being mistreated. He was able to not just endure them because if all he did was endure them, he might have come out with a hard heart, closed off the people. But that's not what he was like. He had a soft heart. He was open to people and he loved his brothers, even though all those things had taken place. He didn't forget them. He didn't whitewash them. He didn't minimize them. He worked through them. And the reason he could do all of that, and we are able to as well, is that he knew what it meant to live in your story. Give us grace, O Lord, that we too might be able to interpret and see the events of our lives differently in a God-centered way because every day and every way we seek to live in your story. For it's in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.